this three truth scheme is based on the work of the great Indian Buddhist Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna 100 CE, who is considered an ancestor of Zen and other schools of Buddhism. It is to be found echoed throughout Zen teachings, though typically not in the form of doctrine, but in the form of structural relations within stories and symbols. Another doctrine of Z that is brought up in the Zen transmission of the lamp is that of the so-called six identities. This refers to six levels of identity of mind and Buddha, illustrating six aspects or stages of enlightenment. Nelda has her hand raised, y'all. Okay, Nelda. I just neglected to put it down. Uh, okay, thanks. And now it's Kim. No, it's now it's Emily. And Emily read. And then it's Kim. Second is identity in words. Or did we, we didn't read the first one, did we? Emily just read that. Yeah, the first level is nuomino identity or identity in principle. This means that all consciousness as has an er, inherent within it, the very same nature, the nature of enlightenment or Buddhahood. I think that word should be nominal. Nominal, thank you. Second is identity in words. This means that insofar as inherent Buddha nature is obscured by distracting conditional habits, people need to be told about this latent potential in order to start on the path to return to it. This is the level of theoretical teaching and learning. Just a second. I want to see what the, um, well, the six identities, levels of the mind. Okay. Is it me? Mm -hmm. Is it Nandia? Yes. Yes. I the names on my screen. Third is the level of contemplation practice, where meditation on the three levels of reality is employed to lead to experiential realization. That was a very wee paragraph. Do you want to get the next one, Nandia? Yes. Fourth is the level of... Can it stop moving, please? Fourth is the level of approximation wherein the senses are purified so as to allow a semblance experience of reality. Since there is still effort involved, it is still not spontaneous mental purity and not considered final realization. The fifth level of identity is that of partial realization of reality. And the sixth and final level is that of ultimate realization. The final level takes place when the awakened mind is fully uncovered and activated and has become autonomous or free from the influence of artificial conditioning. 
while these six levels are not generally named. Um, I'm sorry, but I, I can't read if you move it. And enumerated in this, pre in this precise function in other sand lore, they provide a useful scheme for understanding the various standpoints of the transactions of consciousness represented in sense stories. One set of meditation exercises formulated by Zhihi and recommended in the Zen commentary on the Book of Serenity is what is known as the Six Subtle Methods. A basic form of this practice is indicated in the third story of the Book of Serenity and various modifications of it are found in the exercises of many Zen schools. The first of the six subtle methods. My raised hand, hello. Hey, hey I need help. Okay. I can't, I okay. can't uh, deal with um, the text and looking for raised hands. So okay, well, you told us to raise hands, so I no, did. no, I know, no, that's great. But oh, Nandia, oh. would you be willing to let us know when someone's raised their hand? I'm happy to do that. I great. raised my I, hand a paragraph ago. Yes. So okay. I have a question for people regarding these six levels. Um, do you think that? These six levels, obviously, they build upon one another, so they're sequential. But do you think that once one has attained a subsequent level, one has that? Or can one attain a level and then uh, lose it, so to speak? That's my question. Nelda has her hand raised, but I don't know from when. From right now. Nandia, I can only speak to my personal experience and it's very limited in a short-term practitioner. I've experienced, I think at least once, um, all levels. And, and I say at least once in terms of the, the last and sixth level, I had an experience that as I read over and over, that's what my body tells me I experienced the last level. So I don't, in my personal experience, I think it's, you're able to attain them all. I don't think you're necessarily able to stay in that last level, at least not me. That's me at this point in my practice consistently. And I find myself bouncing between levels and it depends very much on the circumstances of my life or the circumstances of the life of those around me who I care most for at that particular time and moment sometimes. I hope that was helpful. Thank you. Does, does anyone else have a take on that?
see no hands. <laughs> I I do have my trays. Oh, Starlet hand. Go, girl. <laughs> um, obviously, I, 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 I am, I'm a newbie. So I have, I, I don't know if, yeah, I don't know about this. But from what I read, I'm just going to give a supposition. I am not talking from experience, just making that very clear. But I'd imagine that all these levels are like the first level is opening the door of a building. And you enter that building. You get to the second level and you cross another door. And you keep on doing that in each different level. So when you get to the sixth level or any level that you're on, have you lost the first, the second, the third? No, because you wouldn't have been able to get to where you are without them, but it's, they're not keeping you stuck in, their, in that level. It's like stepping stones, you know? You cannot make it to the last, level of that building unless you go through the others and but you are where you are yes that's what um i said sequential that's what that means my question okay. is if say i've reached i've gone through the door and up the stairs and down <laughs> the hallway and into the door and down the hallway and now i'm sort of in level four um, mm -hmm. in five months Will I never dip below level four? Will I maintain that level of quote unquote attainment? That was my question. I understand they're sequential. That you can't get to four unless you've now the hand. There were other hands before mine. Melissa was um I apologize, I am not a good hand seer. Who was first? <laughs> Melissa. Melissa. Thank you. I, I, I really think that this holding up the hand thing may not be um, a workable deal given that we're sharing screen and stuff. But um, to the point, I think what ha I think that you go through, like you were saying, sequentially, but I don't think that means that if you're on level three, you can't step back or, or have circumstances where you step back to level two because perhaps you didn't get everything you were supposed to get from level two. And so then at some point you have to go back and try again or, or gather what you didn't get. I think at level six, if you attain six, I think that one may be one that you don't necessarily retrace your steps from. But um, since life and circumstances are what they are, I, I don't think that you could possibly have learned everything on each level the first time, if that makes sense. I think there would be some things that that might um, come up and you'd have to go back and gather and then go through again or go up again. I don't know if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. Thank you. 
No, the Belda. I actually have a question of Kim because I don't know that these are necessarily sequential. I think it's possible to sip, skip some stepping stones, but I'm not sure. Kim, what's your experience? You've been a practitioner. <laughs> long. I, yeah, I, I don't. I do know that these these are things that would be certified by a teacher, but I just thinking about meditation. You know, you you have a good moment, and then you have a moment where you're completely in la la land, uh, which some say is also a good moment, but. But anyway, um, I'm not sure that uh, we can even talk about this, but I just suspect it's very fluid. I remember one time I had kind of a nice moment and I talked with this teacher. This was like a long time ago, many years ago. And he said, uh, well, enjoy it because it goes away. Something like that. You know, it was like one half of a second. I think it goes away because these are all conditioned experiences and all conditioned experiences arise and pass. So, but anyway, thank you for your input on this question, everybody who inputted. Now so, um, in my limited experience, there have been times when I don't know how to describe it. They're just not words. Where the body completely falls away, it, it it's not even present, and the thoughts completely fall away, and they're not. There are no thoughts. You're not talking to yourself, thinking to yourself. There's just this. Um, energetic interconnected vastness that is the bit when someone asked me once when I had this experience how did it feel I, I told them this is not a place of feelings as we define them I can't talk to you in terms of how it felt physically or emotionally there was no such language going on this place the if there was only one word that I could find to describe it it was absolute peace and so um i don't know that every place or in I, I especially the last place if if the experience i had was close to that last place um i don't think it was a construct it was a nothing there was absolute nothingness and everythingness and that everythingness was this interconnection without bodies, without seeing anything, with, and peace. That's the best I can do, y'all. Closest I can get. I have no idea where we are or who's reading. I um I think I'm reading. I don't okay. remember where we are. How about while these six levels? Okay. Um, I did want to say, Nelda, that I very much enjoyed your last comment, and I'm glad you found that space. That sounds wonderful. 
While these six levels are not generally named and enumerated in this precise fashion in other Zen lore, they provide a useful scheme for understanding the various standpoints of the transactions of consciousness represented in Zen stories. One set of meditation exercises formulated by Kiyi and recommended by <coughs> the Zen community on the Book of Serenity is what is known as the Six Subtle Methods. A basic form of this practice is indicated in the third story in the, of the Book of Serenity, and various modifications of it are found in exercises of many Zen schools. We read something else about the third story, or did we read this paragraph before? I don't know. Okay. The third. Are we at the third? Oh no, the first of the six subtle methods is counting the breath in repeated sets of 10. This is a traditional Buddhist practice specifically prescribed to overcome the tendency toward mind wandering and distraction. This is eventually replaced by following the breath and simply keeping the attention on it continuously without the relative crude aid of counting. Relatively crude aid of counting. Both of these are widely practiced in modern day Zen. The third of the six subtle methods is called stopping or cessation. Here the breath becomes imperceptible and mental activity ceases. This is ordinarily unattainable without careful practice of the first two methods. Cessation, which results in deep tranquility is followed up by the fourth method called contemplation, in which the mind is reactivated to visualize the components of the body. This is done so as to internalize the understanding of the organism as a compound that is dependent and subject to disintegration. One purpose of this is to counteract intoxication by the calmness of cessation with the realization that it depends on the mind-body or body-mind, and is thus by nature impermanent and not ultimately reliable. I just want to say I've got my hand raised and sweet Nanda's doing her best at this, but this is a very poorly edited book. They skipped the second method, completely left it out. And it looks like now we've skipped the fourth method and are on the fifth. They mentioned the second in the paragraph I read. Where was it? Will you go up? Thank you, Nandia. Will you go up, Kim, so that my eye can catch it? I'm sorry for not seeing your hand. I had a pretzel. In that <laughs> <laughs> <I'm good. laughs> Let's see, the first of the six is it's centralized by following the breath and something counting. Then, where is I, that? The Sorry, I mentioned the second, I recall. But. Second, this is eventually replaced by following the breath. That is the second. Method. The second. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. So, where's the fourth now? 
It was probably in the third paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) Is followed up by the fourth method called contemplation. In which the mind is reactivated to visualize components of the body. Paragraphing was not taught. Okay, I, who's reading? Nelda, are you reading next? Nandia, did you read the last paragraph? Yes, I just read. Okay. Thank you. The fifth subtle method called returning similarly cuts through fixations to the standpoint of the preceding stage of contemplation. It accomplishes this by turning the attention away from the object of contemplation to the mind itself that contemplates. This is the aforementioned exercise of looking for the mind, which is one of the main Zen meditation practices. Withdrawal of the mind from objects and focusing it on the ungraspable essence of its own consciousness is intended to free the mind from clinging and return it to its original purity. In the sixth subtle method that follows on this called purity, the practitioner experiences essential purity and finally attains spontaneity. A number of meditation methods described by Sigi in his work also appear in directions for meditation attributed to the fourth patriarch of Zen, Dao Xin. Is it Dao Xin or Dao Xin or Dao Qin? Yes. (laughs) Thank you. That clarified it. Okay. Um, Dao Xin was the first Zen master to establish a settled community of students. And he is said to have complied manuals. I think that means that it was meant to say compiled, mm. not complied. He's said okay. to have compiled manuals at of discipline and meditation for his disciples, his disciples. These methods include incantation, visualization, examination of mental functions, and contemplation of essence of mind. All of them have precedence in the Tiantai of Si. The career of Dao Xin is believed to mark the beginning of public recognition of the Zen school. Uh, let's see. Zen school, okay. The fifth patriarch of Zen, Hongren, 602-675, was the only one of Dao Xin's 500 disciples given permission to teach. He is said to have used the Vajra Chakidika Sutra, or Diamond Cutter Scripture, in his teaching, and is also the reputed author of a treatise on the Supreme Vehicle, emphasizing discovery and preservation of the fundamental mind 
without fragmentation of consciousness. The diamond cutter scripture stresses non-attachment to forms, elimination of religious self-consciousness, relinquishness of means when the end is attained, <coughs> the distinction between concept and reality, and the ungraspability of mind. All of these themes are prominent in classic Zen teaching and represent symbolically and represented symbolically in many Zen stories. This scripture is one of the most popular of all Buddhist texts in East Asia, and innumerable commentaries have been written on it. Angren's great successor, Wei Ning, is said to have <coughs> been enlightened on hearing a single line from it. The treatise on the Supreme Vehicle, attributed to Hangren, is a short work whose main point is the original purity of mind. It distinguishes the real mind from conditioned states of mind and says that the essential practice is to maintain this original real mind and keep it unified, not letting it scatter. To find the real mind, the treatise recommends the practice of observing the flow of consciousness, noting its volatility and ungraspability as a result of persistence in this attentive observation. It states, the flowing stream of consciousness will naturally evaporate and the mind will become clear and stable so that <coughs> one can become able to live without being mentally dominated by conditions. Charlotte has her hand raised. Uh, yes. Um, could you please clarify, can someone please clarify what it is selfish, religious, self, um, how did you say it? Um, can you go a little bit higher? Okay, religious self-consciousness, the elimination of religious self What is religious self-consciousness? Because uh, to me, when I think of religion, it's a set of beliefs. But religious self-conscious, I, I don't understand. I I, this is Nandia. I, I think that the beginning of this uh, uh, paragraph refers to um, various conceivings that we have, which is a, a way of saying the story the mind weaves around things that is adding extra from things as they are. So religious self-consciousness is another conceiving just uh myself as a quote-unquote religious being and that means x y and z that would be my take kind of like having a big ego or to me, you know, like to think of yourself, I'm a Buddhist. 
and, and making that a big part of, of how you see yourself rather than just engaging in the practice. I mean, you know, we know it's self-consciousness, like a person who's self-conscious um, is very inhibited in their movements. And so a religious self to me would be someone who's very aware of their religion and thinks about, oh, I'm, I'm a this, I'm a that. So if I say something like um, someone that said there's reality, but this person tries to impose their religious beliefs on reality, even though it's just not feasible, but they want to bend reality to make fit that, that would also be a way of being overly religious, I would think. So, so would that be a way of saying you cannot put, um, I'm gonna use a book, you know, like the Bible, for example, you can not put the Bible before humans. No, I, really I, don't, I, don't, I don't agree. I don't think it's going there. I think it's a okay. much simpler idea of just being, you know, you, you know what self-conscious is. Like if you were a dancer and you were self-conscious, your movements would be inhibited. Oh, yes. And so what's inhibiting this person is their religion. They're constantly aware of their religion. <laughs> we used to say in the Methodist practice, two things. Um, they will know about you're your Christian by your walk, not your talk. And, um, and we will know we are Christians by our love. I mean, it's that simple, not by what we say or what what um, words we cling to in any particular book, but by our actions and by our love. It's kind of neat at the Jewish uh, temple that I go to, they don't wear yarmulkes because I don't want anyone to feel um, out of place because some people will be wearing them in other places and some people won't. So. So that to me would be an, you know, one way of, of making people less self-conscious. And it's funny that when I was at this place where I stayed in Chicago, I inadvertently stole the yarmulke and found it in my suitcase when I came home. Now I'm going to have to return it. Okay, can we go on? Thank you so much. This has clarified. No, I think it's a really good question. I think all the questions about um, what stage of enlightenment and all that, that, those are all things that you need to talk about with a teacher. You know, and you have, you have glimpses of these things, but I, I get a sense that what they're talking about is something a lot more than glimpses, these levels. Don't you think? Mm -hmm. Not yeah. just, a, just a transitory experience, but something much, much that really becomes part of who you are. 
Um, that me? I don't know. Take a slow Yeah. Okay. You read last? Yeah. Hongren is said to have had 700 disciples, among whom 11 became sufficiently enlightened to become teachers on their own. Among these were the first Zen masters to go to the capital city and promote the study and practice of Zen in China's imperial precincts. Relatively few remnants of the teachings of these schools survive. In any event, they were eventually superseded by the schools of so-called Southern Family of Zen, descended from the illustrious Hunang 638-713, one of the most outstanding Zen masters of all time and recognized in the Southern tradition as the sixth patriarch of Zen. Portrayed as an illiterate woodcutter from the underdeveloped south of China, the drama of Huineng's appearance in Hongren's community, his brief apprenticeship and midnight disappearance is used in Zen lore as a counterpoint to the arrogant self-satisfaction of the learned and the pious, and also as an illustration of the contention that enlightenment and the aspect of the human being in which the potential of enlightenment resides transcend conditioned differences, such as those produced by cultural and social background. That was all one sentence. <laughs> hmm. okay, I, I will, yes, I completely, I will keep my thoughts to myself. <laughs> A collection of sayings attributed to the sixth patriarch of Huineng entitled The Altar Scripture is the only Buddhist text of acknowledged Chinese authorship to be given the title of scripture, usually reserved for works attributed to Buddha. This text presents Zen in, a sim in simple terms such as outwardly discerning everything while in inwardly being unmoved by anything. It has been rendered into English a number of times. A direct successor of Huineng is on record as stating, however, that the altar scripture con contains spurious material wrongly attributed to the patriarch. In any case, its place in the history of Zen study is somewhat problematic as it does not appear to have been used much in working Zen schools. A commentary on the aforementioned diamond cutter scripture is also attributed to one, I'm sorry, Wineng, although oral, I'm sorry, one more time. <laughs> A commentary on the aforementioned diamond cutter scripture is also attributed to Wineng through oral transmission. And this too presents the teaching in a clear and simple manner without scholastic complications. Okay, I'm going to read as much as I can, but when I cannot continue, I will stop. Uineng was widely recognized as the master of the age. And it is said that countless people benefited from attending his lectures. 
He is believed to have taught 33 known enlightened disciples who were overt representatives of his school and taught in various places as his successor. It is also recorded that there were a large number of people who attained enlightenment under his guidance, but subsequently concealed their identity and remained unknown as heirs of the patriarch. This latter note in the histories point up the fact commonly encountering Zen, Lord, but later obscured by institutionalization that Zen adits did not at all appear in the world as teachers, many choosing anonymity. Perhaps teaching indirectly, perhaps associating only with the few who recognize their attachment apart from external appearances and reputation. Can some, I'm gonna stop here. This aspect of the Zen movement is at times only hinted at in the records, at times made explicit. In the case of Li Neng's successors, certain ones seem to have had the task of contacting scattered remnants of the school of the fifth patriarch who had become obsessed with trance exercises and thus cut themselves off from the fuller expression of the teaching. Very little is known of the schools of the heirs of the sixth patriarch, but in the second generation of the two great teacher Shitu and Matsu appeared who together produced over 150 enlightened successors and effected a dramatic expansion in Zen activity. She too is the author of Union of Difference and Sameness, one of the earliest Zen classics, a short work in verse emphasizing what in modern psychological terms would be referred to in terms of the harmonious operation of the left and right brain in a highly integrated working of the mind. We, we do read that. It, it's called the merging of difference and, and it, the merging of difference and it's not mm -hmm. sameness. I can't remember. Oh. I want to say merging of difference and equality, but it's not that. Um, merging of difference and unity. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like that. Um, Mazu, I think. Mazu did not write anything, but was a person of such towering spiritual force that he was able to help over 130 people become enlightened. Of these, 80 or so became teachers. Matsu's general teachings present a picture of great simplicity but most of the information about him is in stories of his encounters with students, showing the way out of particular standpoints. Many of the Zen adepts of the time studied with both Shitu and Mazu. Among these was the great layman Pang Yun, one of the more extraordinary lay masters of whose sayings and compositions a considerable record remains.
Among Mazu's many successors, two that stand out for particular attention uh, are Baizan Hei, also known by the horrific title, honorific title, Dazi, and Nan Quan Fu Yan, died 834. Baizan is nominally the founder of Chan Zen commune system. And the author of the famous saying, <coughs> a day without work is a day without food. The record of Zhang's sayings is one of the most extensive of all the classic masters and provides an unusually explicit theoretical basis for understanding Chan teaching and practice, leaking Chan with the ancestral tradition of scriptures and ancient adepts. Baizong emphasizes the necessity to perceive ab both absolute and conventional levels of truth and organizes the course of Buddhism into three, into three phase, uh, phases. Uh, detachment not dwelling in detachment and not making an understanding of not dwelling in attachment. He stresses moreover that all formulations of practice and realization, for example, are expedites and are by na nature incomplete. Maybe it's, wait, maybe it's expedience. Maybe it's, oh, thank you. Very good. Thank you. Okay. Expedience and are by nature incomplete. Baizong states that uh, Buddha is a person who has succeeded in getting out of bondage to feelings, thoughts, and other media of conditioning, yet then comes back to the realm of bondage to help others out. He asserts that Buddhas suffer as other beings do, but they are different in that they are free to come or go. Baizong speaks of Buddhahood largely in human terms, but days that are full scope of reality is not available. A full the scope full scope of reality is not available to human beings. It is this realization that highlights the true nature of descriptions and devices reflecting human concerns and does not allow a real Chan practitioner to close his or her mind around any particular formulations. Baizong points our Points our points our that authoritism. Okay, I think that's what it means. Points that. Out. Oh, thank you. Yes, that would make much more sense. That authoritism is a degeneration of the teaching function. He is one of the most outspoken opponents of propriety interest in the ex externals of a school. Oh, oh, sorry, Charlotte. You have a hand. Yes. Um, please, could you explain to me what it is? Proprietary in the externals of a school. What is that? Well, there was a lot of fighting between the various schools. And I would say a proprietary interest if people did not 
wanting to um, kind of champion their school over other schools. So, so part of, of these Zen people were to um, really minimize that. Like when Bodhidharma came back, when not Bodhidharma, I guess Dogen came back to Japan, um, there was a lot of, of, and also when Bodhidharma came to back to China, there was a lot of resistance to accepting his um, thinking. I so remember, ex go on. No, I was just going to say, remember the movie that you... Yeah. And it, it's, that's what was happening there. Right. That, okay. Now I understand. I guess. I don't... I might be all wrong, but anyway, that's what I think. Elda, speak, sister. Thank you. So I'm also trying to wrap my mind around that, and I apologize, apologize if I keep bringing it up in a Christian context, but that's actually where most of my life has been steeped before coming to, to Zen. And so when I look at having a, a proprietary interest in the externals of the school, I think of one denomination of a Christian church saying that in order to be baptized, you have to be dunked in water. Another says you can be sprinkled. Another says one baptism counts for all. Another says you have to be, whether it's, you know, there, there are these minute, what I call externals of a school of teaching in Christianity that really don't make a, a huge difference to me. I remember getting into a conversation, for example, with a, I don't remember if it was a person at the Latter-day Saint Church or who it was. She was a neighbor and she said that actually earth was the paradise of the future, that everyone would die and people would be raised right here on this earth and it would be paradise. And my only question to her was, you know, as long as it's paradise, what difference does it make if it's on this planet, a foreign planet, no planet at all, if it's paradise? I mean, that seems to be splitting hairs, doesn't it? And I'm wondering if that's what's meant by externals of a school here. Mm -hmm. I think so. I think some, um, you know, for some people, they're very superficial, these distinctions. It's funny just in terms of trademark, isn't it? A proprietary interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Um, was thinking of, and also to be worried about the external interest, to be worried about the going and, and, and making sure that your um, teachings or your whatever are in the forefront and that they take precedent over somebody else's rather than just being in your um, school and studying, right? And doing what, who said that earlier about, um, uh, you show what you're supposed to be as a Christian person rather than 
going and holding a banner up saying, well, I'm so good because I'm Christian. Um, so I think that's a lot of it too, that the proprietary interests are in externals is what's going on out in the world and not paying attention to what you're supposed to be studying and learning and making making those interests out in the world and showing off your school more important than um, than studying and finding out what you're supposed to do and be. Yeah, I think that's important, like how something really is as opposed to how it looks. Mm -hmm. I appreciate all the answers and now I'm going to, because while you guys, each one of you were giving me a different perspective, this thought came into my mind. Could it also be, besides everything that you guys have said, um, the fact that nobody has all the truth and that maybe the way one school does it is good and the way that another school does it is good also. And it just depends on the student, what works for them. I think so. I think so. And unfortunately, we all think that our way is the best way. But it seems to me that it even goes deeper than that, that there's identification with these externals, that mm -hmm. we, we take them on and we are some kind of way and this thing is some kind of way. So I think this points to sort of the danger in that. Should I read the next paragraph? What do folks Sure. Do? Okay. Yeah. The place of Nanquan in Chan tradition is a special one, emphasizing a certain aspect of the teaching. This is pointed out in the Book of Serenity, and it should be borne in mind that the representational place of certain teachers in tradition does not necessarily indicate the full scope of their teaching. Indeed, the essential nature of Chan, quote, history is representational and instructive. The, quote, facts, represented need not be facts in the conventionally understood terrestrial sense, but are rather in the domain of illustration of certain processes and relations. In the case of Nan Quan, he is often cited to fulfill the function of what is called, called in Chan upholding the true imperative which means to remind the student that no formulation is final, that there is no place in absolute reality to set the mind. As the saying goes, insects may lay anywhere else, but they cannot land in a raging fire. The mind may fix on concepts, but not on ultimate truth. This kind of teaching is posed as a counterbalance to the ordinary human tendency to seek regularity and familiarity. There are many indications in Chan lore of teachers attempting to break through these tendencies, 
that lead to and are expressed by mechanical repetition in the form of sloganization, ceremonialism, and general sanctification of, mean, of means as ends in themselves. There are a number of favorite sayings and stories of Nanquan commonly used in this connection, one of which is the famous tale of killing the cat. Chan commentary indicates that the meaning is found by perceiving the structure of the stories and perceiving the function through the structure. The surface content is just a vehicle. I think uh, Starlet's next. Um, I have my hand raised. Um, I sorry, pretzel. <laughs> okay. Um, it's going to be my new thing. Sorry, pretzel. Um, what is killing the cat? Oh, this, that's a famous koan where the I guess uh, Don Quinn says to his the monks. If you uh, if you don't give me a word of Zen, I'm going to cut the cat in half, and they're all silent. We'll read a, that koan. I, I, I <laughs> so that koan is in this book. I believe so. It's a very famous koan. Okay, then I guess I will have to wait until then to be. You have to wait, yes, or you can Google Nan Quinn's Killing the Cat Koan and read about it. It's a wonderful one. I'm glad to hear that because the premise of it does not sound wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad to hear that the meaning is different than what it says. Um, I. I'm unable to read anymore. I read okay. too much. No worries. Um, where are we? Among non-con successors? I think so, yes. Among non-con successors was the very famous Xiao Zhu, one of the favorite figures of Chan lore. Like Layman Pang, Zhao Zhu is noted for his extensive travels after enlightenment that helped to consolidate the fabric of the overall Chan activity. Zhao Zhu figures in numerous stories of the most esteemed collection of meditation tales. And there is a rather extensive collection of his sayings in the classic records of sayings of ancient adepts. The presence of Nanquan and Zhao Zhu permeates Chan lore and they are universally considered giants in the tradition. I am just noticing that Starlet has her hand up, but I don't know if it is from now or before. It is, it is from now. Um, is this issue the same one from the Rhinoceros Koan book? Yes, I believe so. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I He's very famous. We'll very read a lot of cons with him. Yeah. I, I, 
I wasn't sure if it was, but that's why it was. And that one was also in that book, right? I believe so, yes. Oh, cool. That was it. <laughs> that was my whole question. Okay, who just read? Emma, I think Emily. it's you. You're up. The so-called golden age of Chan is largely dominated by the emergence over a span of a century or so of five, <coughs> five powerful lineages known to history as the five houses of Chan, descended from Shitu and Mazu through the teachers Yeo Shan, Tang Wan, and Biazan. Each of these houses is associated with particular manners and expressions of teaching. The formulations and anecdotes of their founders become standard reference points in the teaching method of later generations. Among Bazong's numerous successors, the names of Gaishang Lung and Han Bo stand out in Chan history. Gasan uh, died 1854, and his uh, eminent disciple Yang Shan died 18, I'm, I'm sorry, 1890, had common communities of students and many enlightened heirs, and their lineage is referred to as the House of Gai and Yang. Much of the documentation of this house is in the form of dialogue between these two masters, represented as two mirrors without an image interposed and describing one of the methods of teaching and the reality of mind-to-mind -mind communication that underlies it. Gaizan also wrote a short treaty, treatise describing the degeneration of contemporary Chan brought about by the great influx of students with faculty intentions and insufficient grounding in the classical Buddhist sciences and disciplines. Contrary to popular notions of Chan Buddhists as free thinkers and iconoclasts with no regard for, for sculpture or precept, Gujan lays emphasis on the foundation of conduct and the careful study of principles of Buddhism. He especially emphasizes scripture study for those who cannot achieve the sudden transcendence of Chan mystic method, which means, in other words, for most people. Yang Shan was an extraordinary Zen master to whom 11 regional military civil commanders among the most powerful and arrogant men in China are said to have paid homage as dis disciples. As a young man, he studied with ancient masters and was entrusted with an esoteric teaching system said to have been handed down from the sixth patriarch, parts of which appear in the Book of Serenity and other Chan texts. Communicating the arcana of Chan lore by means of obscure signs and symbols. Aside from the few signs for which explanations are given, a large number of symbols exist that are no longer understood at all. The most extensive explanations of signs used by Yang Shan is 
I believe that's supposed to say preserved, maybe it does, in the teachings of one of his disciples, a Korean adept in Annals of the Halls of the Ancestors, a text which until recently preserved only in Korean tradition. There are also hints of some occult connection between Yangshan and adepts somewhere to the west, which may help to explain his use of visual symbols to an extent greater than any other Chan master so far as is known. Wangbo, death 850, another of Bai Shang's great successors, is said to have been naturally enlightened, and notices of his speech and behavior reflect the irrepressible independent spirit esteemed in Chan Buddhism. Records of a number of his speeches are preserved in two short texts that present the theoretical and practical aspects of Chan in a very straightforward and simple form. His remarkable disciple, Lingji, Yi Xuan died 867, after whom the Lingxi House of Chan is named, was a similarly dynamic personality whose collected sayings became one of the major classics of Zen. Lingxi further elaborated certain formulations of his teacher Huang Bo and the latter's predecessor Bai Shang and also clarified a number of specific strategies of, of Chan teaching method. Lingxi emphasized the nature of religious and philosophical formulations in Buddhism as originating in or describing mental states and processes and stressed the importance of actually living through these experiences. He was known also for the use of the shout which he explained could be used as a shock technique to interrupt a useless stream of consciousness, or as a sounding technique to draw a reaction, on the basis of which further interaction could be made, or as a simple, I'm sorry, <laughs> or as a cornering technique to exert pressure on someone in a quandary or as an expression of what cannot be conceptualized or articulated. That's a lot of oars. Um, I'm sure he chose wisely. This shout was soon imitated by followers of Lingji to the extent that one of his successors had to speak out against this ignorant mime. And one of the greatest masters of his lineage centuries later actually imposed to find <laughs> <laughs> imposed a fine imposed a fine I guess on students who pretended to express their understanding by shouting that reminds me of the little boy the student who raised the one finger right yeah why don't you tell the story not everyone knows that I don't remember who that particular teacher was but there was a particular particular adept who Every time someone would ask him a question about the practice, he'd raise a finger. And so there was this young student who watched that. And at one point in time, someone came into the community or this young boy somewhere and asked him, what does your teacher teach? And the little boy imitated his teacher and raised one finger. And his teacher saw him do that and cut off his finger. And the boy was immediately enlightened. Wow. 
You can read the commentary on it. So <laughs> the commentary was actually quite good. I remember the commentary loosely. I remember it as that finger, like so many things in in these um, um, pawns are symbolic, really. They're not real. They're just a metaphor for something, a metaphor for a metaphor for something indescribable, I guess. So I just want to uh, recognize that Starlet had her hand up and then shyly took it away. So would you like to say something, Starlet? I just, I'm, I'm just showing my ignorance. The, the thing is that I, I was gonna ask, what is the shout technique? Is it that when somebody's meditating, somebody comes and shouts, or that in conversation, I, I don't understand it. Well, as a response, another response would be putting a shoe on top of a head, <laughs> trying to get out of the discursive mind. I think it's described right at the beginning, it was described well, um, the shout, where was that? But how does that help? How does it what? I mean, if I am stuck in something, I am not understanding or something, and somebody shouts at me, how is that going to help me center my mind? That's exactly it knocks you off your block. Yeah. It's like, it's just all of a sudden, there's something completely different that makes that sort of train of train that you're on. You, you just transported, you're just completely taken off of that. And sometimes that's what's needed. Does that make any sense? Yeah, Starlet, can you think of your illness in a way as a shout that that brought you to an understanding that you wouldn't have come to without it? You know, something jars you. A lot of people say, you know, an illness does this or a, an accident does it or something that they didn't expect. What do you mean? And yes, my illness is just, it has had that influence in me. Yeah, it's like a shout. Okay. Because you're going along your life in a very uh, controlled way. Everything, you know, was like this would happen and then this would happen and this would happen. And this this illness wasn't expected by you, right? Correct. And, and it made you reconsider everything. So that is I, think, true. I think it's similar to shouting. Okay, that is, I understand now. Thank you for the explanation. I'm learning a lot today. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I appreciate your questions. Um, do you want me to read? Sure. Okay. A number of Lin Just, let me let me go so we get the whole thing. Okay. okay. A number of Lin Ji's formulations also became standard items of Chan lore. 
teaching schemes known as the three mysteries and three essentials, the fourfold host and guest, the four views. The three mysteries and three essentials are an abstruse elaboration of the three stages of attainment stated by Bai Zhang, alluding to subtle gradations in the relation of the practitioner to the stage of practice. The fourfold host and guest symbolize overall aspects of realization. The guest within a guest refers to the state of people alienated from the true self, merely being occupied in the pursuit of externals. The host within the guest refers to the elementary stage of Chan practice in which people sense or believe in the latent presence of real consciousness and turn away from externals to look for the innermost mind. The guest within the host is the awakened person who then returns to the ordinary world to contact others. The host within the host is the inner essence or personal experience of the enlightened. The four views is a set of experiential possibilities exercised to help people proceed from the first stage of guest within guest through the second, which is a transition technique to reach the third and the fourth, which are complementary. The four views are the state of effacing the environment, but not the person. Effacing the person, but not the environment. Effacing both and effacing neither. The last stage refers to perfect integration of, of consciousness and objective reality, made possible by gradual removal of subjective biases through purgative purifying experiences. I just want to see how much more we have. Quite a bit. <laughs> well, in the scheme of two years of studying that we'll be studying this book, it's not much at all. These are all the people we're going to be, you know, who are characters. It's wonderful. This is where we are, right? No, a little bit. One I feel more. like I need to diagram this because I can't, I need some like a visual representation of. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, I was too. Well, as we read about these characters in the koans, we could come back to these passages about them. It just, just, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Starlet, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that it feels like this introduction is like concentrated. Yes. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. Where are we? It's like a crash course in Buddhism or yeah. <laughs> the history of. What did we last read? Um, we were talking about the four um, 
uh, host within a guest and guest within a guest. Little, yeah, there we go. That's where we were. Okay, so now we're here. Yeah. It's your turn, Kim. Roughly contemporary with Di Shan, Yan Shan, Han Bo, and Lin Chi were the noted adepts De Shan, Zan Jian, Dan Shan, Lang Ji, and Kao Shan Benji. The la two lat latter masters were the ancestors of the so called Kaodong school, while the former was the ancestor of the Yunmen and Feian houses of Chan. Dangshan and Kaoshan are famous for the creation or development of a number of teaching formula known as the five ranks, the three roads, the three falls, the three leaks, and the four types of and four and the four types of different kinds. The five ranks device is practically particularly well known and formed the basis for the recognition of Zen study. Reorganization. Wait, reorganization. Oh, reorganization. You're correct. The reorganization of Zen study in the Japanese Rinzai school of the eighth century. The five ranks may be viewed as a progression of stages of development or analysis or an analysis of different degrees of integration. In the first, called the relative within the absolute, one practices detachment and interruption of mental habits, thereby gaining a measure of freedom and rest from compulsion and confusion. Detachment alone, however, is called a pit or a cave in Chan lore and shunned as a perilous indulgence and the perilous indulgence without positive usefulness in itself. The second rank, therefore, called the absolute within the relative, is a state of merging with the environment, achieving a kind of unity, su subject and object, sometimes likened to being like a mirror. The capacity to become totally absorbed in the present, however, while useful for breaking through the mental scattering caused by excessive attention to the past or future is also eventually shunned, called in Chan technical terminology, falling into the present because it lacks the facility, the faculty of discrimination necessary for the person to become fully effective in the world. Thus the third rank coming from within the absolute does not remain in this equanimity and turns to development of observation and action that leads to the fourth rank, arrival in the relative and the mastery of action in the world. The fifth rank, simultaneous arrival in both relative and absolute, refers to the consumption of harmony and integration of transcendence and being in the world. In the Book of Serenity, this rank is represented as a minor spinning 
the back dark side of detachment and transcendence seeming to merge with the facilitating bright side or the functioning bright side. This scheme of five ranks has early models in the Lotus of Truth, Siddharma Pundaka, and the flower or ornament of Vaka, Vaka Masuka scriptures, both of which were widely read and highly esteemed in Chan circles. Wow. The three roads scheme also presents major stages of Chan practice and realization in general outline and echoes the previously mentioned three phases divine, defined by Bai Zhang two generations earlier. The first road called the path of the bird is detachment, emptying the mind of preoccupations and is referred to as quote, walking in the void. The second road called the hidden path goes further yet to the state of non-attachment, even to detachment, where there is no longer consciousness of emptiness. The third road called quote, extending the hands refers to returning to the world freely, liberated enough to be in the world without being conditioned by worldly things and now able to contemplate the cycle of Buddhist life by reaching out to others to help them toward liberation. So these are all descriptions of the, of the um, stages of enlightenment, aren't they? But I was... and, and on Wednesday night, I'm in concentration meditation, I'm going to ha go through a a much much simpler one <laughs> only three three stages charlotte you raising your hand yes i was actually going to ask if what was just read was actually a description of a bodhisattva because they reach enlightenment and then they decide to come back into the world to help others be, be able to also become enlightened. Hmm. I'm reading that last sentence and it sounds like it where it says the third world road called extending the hands. So you <clears throat> re return to the world freely you're liberated enough to be in the world without being conditioned by worldly things and now able to complete the cycle of Buddhist life by reaching out to others to help them toward liberation. So you know what I love about that last sentence? It doesn't even talk about enlightenment. It doesn't say you've reached enlightenment, you haven't reached enlightenment. You're just now able to reach out to others. And so... Bodhisattvas, correct me if I'm wrong, Kim, are usually um, defined as those who reach enlightenment and, 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 and don't have to go through rebirth again, but decide to stay in order to help others reach enlightenment. Is that accurate or accurate enough? Well, that's good that you're saying that. 
you know, toward liberation. So it's not like, um, not that it's not like giving money to the homeless, not that I'm demeaning that, but, but it's really the, the, toward liberation, toward freeing the person from attachment. And I think what makes the sense confusing about whether they're bodhisattvas or not is that it uses the same language at the end where it says, and now able to complete the cycle of Buddhist life by reaching out to others to help them towards liberation. And that's what bodhisattvas do. Well, it's a little surprising to me. So the, in, it depends upon the tradition where that would be exactly the cycle of the Buddhist path. Thank you, Nadia. You're right. Yes. Because yes. because the the cycle to me would be um, that everyone would become liberated, and then you would not get reborn. Not that that's going to happen, but it doesn't seem like the cycle is completed until that happens. So. Um, well, at least it's not going to happen before the next election cycle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, so it's a little surprising to me, the, the terminology. You help others to toward liberation before you complete the cycle. Maybe that's, the completing the cycle. That's as well. Yeah, maybe the completing the cycle is getting to that last stage of enlightenment and not the cycle of not being reborn. I'm just going to say what it just occurred to me that maybe this whole introduction is a koan. So we, yes, <laughs> that are hidden. Every, every, everything's a koan. <laughs> um, oh, I think our time is up. Mm. Everyone have a good night. night's sleep. You too. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thank you.